Good morning. So recently, um, we've completed a series in Jude, um, just, you know, finished up a few weeks back, where the theme was contending for the faith. And in particular, it was against those who had come into the church and disrupt and teach false doctrine from the inside. Um, today, I'd like to continue that theme of contending for the faith or holding firm in our faith in the book of Hebrews. And Hebrews is talking about pressure from outside the church, things that would draw us away, weaken our faith, or cause us to let go of our hope and turn away from God. And in particular, I'd like to focus today on the responsibility we have to support each other in doing this. So I've titled this, Holding Firm Till the End. In chapter 13, verse 22, we read, I urge you, brothers, to bear with my word of exhortation, for I have only written you a short letter. So Hebrews is a, is a book of exhortation or encouragement, written to believers who attempted to go back to or to conform to the culture and traditions of their families and society that they were a part of, in their case, Judaism. Or they attempted to walk away from their faith to avoid the persecution they are facing because they are Christians. And while we are not tempted to put ourselves under Judaism, we do nonetheless face many temptations to join the culture around us. Our culture tells us we don't need God. Man has all the answers in science and medicine, technology. There is constant pressure for us to compromise God's word or our faith, to fit in with the world around us. And it offers all these temptations to chase after what the world is offering, to leave God and his word behind. And we have seen some prominent and indeed tragic examples of that this year. Just a few months ago, um, Joshua Harris, who wrote the book I Kissed Dating Goodbye, and for the last 10 years has been senior pastor at a massive church in Canada, publicly announced that he was leaving Christianity. He feels that the Bible's teaching on some of the issues prominent in our culture is wrong, and so he's rejected God's word and his faith. Um, because of his high profile, this announcement was quite shocking and, and very sudden. And while obviously I don't pretend to know his situation or all his struggles and what led up to that point, I'm sure it wasn't something that he decided just one morning when he woke up. I think what we saw with his announcement was the final step or the final result of just a gradual drifting away from God. And probably here at Te Aumuru Bible Chapel and churches all around New Zealand, this quiet drifting away from the church and God has happened and does happen. And if we're not watching out, we may not even notice it. Um, in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, it says, See to it that you pay more careful attention so that you don't drift away. Um, we, and we have that responsibility for each other in this, that we watch out for each other so that none of us end up in that position. And while we don't currently face persecution for being Christians, though, the way those in the book of Hebrews did, we do need to be prepared for it to come. Um, a guy in the UK, Dr. David Makarath, um, lost his job late last year, essentially because of his Christian faith. His boss became aware that he was a Christian and called him into his office. He was asked, hypothetically, if he would be happy to refer to a six-foot-tall bearded man as Madam, if he was requested to. And he said he would not, because of his belief in the Bible and because he thought that the medical profession should be based on intellectual and moral integrity. In other words, it needs to be based in reality to function. Um, but his boss's response was to fire him. And Dr. Macrath took the case to court earlier this year. He was trying to keep his job, but he lost. 
Um, the judge ruled that belief in Genesis, chapter 1, verse 27, that God created them male and female, lack of belief in transgenderism, and conscientious objection to transgenderism, and our judgment are incompatible with human dignity and conflict with the fundamental rights of others. And so far as those biblical beliefs form part of his wider faith, his wider faith does not satisfy the requirement of being worthy of respect in a democratic society. So that's pretty grim from our perspective. Um, in the eyes of that court, Christianity is not worthy of respect. Now, that's only one court, perhaps, and it's in the UK, but closer to home, we may have seen the reaction of our media to Israel Folau's comment warning that hell awaits sinners and that only Jesus can save us. Now, setting aside whether he should have posted the gospel in that way on Instagram, the way our media treated that issue shows that if people in general begin to think like those in the media do, there is persecution ahead for Christians in New Zealand. And whether it takes the form of job loss or fines or tax penalties or worse, who knows? And even if it doesn't come for a while, the attack on God's word in particular and truth and reality in general is very real. And the pressure to conform to the new cultural norms shouldn't be underestimated. So... The message of Hebrews, I think, is very relevant for us today. And just as it was written to encourage those early Jewish Christians to persevere in spite of the circumstances around them, it offers great practical encouragement for us in our situation. And as well as being written to encourage us, Hebrews shows us why it is we need to put effort into encouraging each other. In chapter 3, verse 13, we read, Encourage one another daily as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We need to encourage each other because of the deceitfulness of sin. And, we talk, and when we're talking about sin deceiving us, that's encompassing the world, the flesh, and the devil. Um, the world, or the culture we live in, is trying to deceive us. Our own sinful desires, or our flesh, is trying to deceive us. And there is a spiritual element, the leader of which is Satan, that is out to deceive us. Um, and there are two main categories under which sin deceives. Firstly, pleasure or good times, and also suffering and struggle or pain. In pleasure, sin deceives us into thinking that we don't need God. It offers us a whole list of things we can enjoy and fools us into believing that they will satisfy and fulfill us. And sin deceives us by telling us that the here and the now is the most important thing and that we should be focusing on that. And then on the other hand, in pain or suffering, sin deceives us into thinking God doesn't care about us. It tells us God can't help us and therefore is powerless, or that God won't help us and therefore doesn't love us. Sin deceives by telling us we are the only ones struggling. No one else has the problems you have, so perhaps you should just cut yourself off from other Christians and keep away from church. Um, and sin deceives in persecution, telling us if we just give up our faith, all will be well with us. And it matters if we allow ourselves to be deceived into believing these things. In chapter 10, verse 25, it says, Do not give up the meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage each other, and all the more as we see the day approaching. We need to encourage each other because of what is at stake. The day of Jesus' return is coming, and there are only two options, salvation and glory and reward and joy for those who are following him but judgment and punishment for those who are not. So, 
that's why we need to encourage each other. And now I'd just like to go back and have a look at the, the actual encouragement that Hebrews offers us. And the first thing the book of Hebrews does is remind us who it is we've put our faith in. So chapter 1, verses 1 to 3 say, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So we have put our faith in Jesus, and Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. Jesus is God. And Jesus is the one through whom God made the universe. He is heir of all things. Jesus is God's greatest and final revelation of himself to mankind. Jesus sustains all things by his word of power. Jesus is the only one to have sacrificed a worthy offering for our sins. And Jesus is the only one sitting at the right hand of the majesty in heaven making intercession for us. Now, there's not time to dig into all of that. But I would just like to briefly look at God's role as creator and sustainer to hopefully just get a feel for the point of that passage. Every year on earth we produce a lot of energy, more, more than ever before. Um, you know, that upsets Greta, Greta a bit. Um, with our, our power stations, nuclear, coal, hydro, solar, wind, which power our homes and industry, um, with petrol and oil, etc., powering our cars, trains, ships, planes, and so on. And at the current rate of production, it would take 500,000 years to produce as much energy on Earth as the sun produces every second. The sun is an average-sized star, and there are billions of trillions of stars all producing energy at that rate. Now, these verses tell us that God spoke all of that into existence. And in verse 3, it says he sustains all things by his powerful word. Sure. So when the Bible says that God is able to meet our needs in Christ Jesus, it's not joking. It's not some sort of cliche. God has resources and authority and power that is without limits, completely beyond our imagining or ability to comprehend. And this infinite God sent his own son, Jesus, to make purification for our sin, which is the root of all our problems. And our right response to that should just be to fall on our knees in awe and gratitude and adoration. Sorry. And that's the point of this passage. If the danger we face is of drifting or falling or turning away or being enticed away from God, then the very safest place we can be is on our knees in awe and adoration before him. So then the author of Hebrews moves on to what Jesus has done for us. He is our great high priest. He became a human just like us. He suffered and was tempted in every way as a man, yet he was without sin. And because of what he suffered, because of how he was tempted, he can sympathize with us. He can help us in our time of need. He presented himself as a perfect substitute offering for sin once for all, purchasing for us a hope that will never fail, it, fail us. He has dealt with our sin problem. That's done. He's sorted it. 
And he has also promised to return and take us to be with him for all eternity. In chapter 6, verses 18 to 19, we read, We who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Now, the purpose of an anchor is to prevent a boat moving from where it needs to be or where it needs to stay. And the hope that Jesus has set before us helps us to hold firm against anything that would seek to entice or turn us away from God. Just as sin can deceive us through both pleasure or pain, so hope can anchor us through both. When we are forced or persecuted into doing something, human nature being what it is, we can tend to dig in our heels and fight and resist. But when we're offered interesting and enjoyable things and enticed away, we won't even notice we're drifting. So it could be argued that it is actually in easy times like we experience where that anchor is most important. Our son, William, he's two and a half now, he has a very effective anchor at times. Um, when William has his little heart set on something, he can be very, very hard to turn aside. All the temptations or other things we might offer won't move him from what he's focused on. So, for example, in the morning when I'm out of time, I just need to get a few things done and head off to work. He's telling me, Daddy, Daddy, let's go climb the ladder and pick some plums, please. And I say, well, how about we go and shift the cows together? That'll be fun. No, Daddy, I want to climb the ladder. And I say, well, what about after Daddy gets home? No, now. Okay, what about a pack ride to shift the cows? You like your pack ride? Come on. He said, no, no, I want to pick plums. Well, shall we have, have our breakfast first? You must be hungry by now. No, I want to pick plums, Daddy. Please. Are you thirsty? Shall I get you a drink? No. Shall we do some Play-Doh? Just here at the table. Play-Doh will be fun. No, Daddy. Come on. Come on, Daddy. Come on. And sometimes I prevail in the end, and sometimes I'm late to work. <laughs> but the point of all that is, when he has his little heart set on something, in this case, picking plums, climbing the ladder, there is no temptation or argument I can offer that will take his focus off it. And in the same way, if we can set our hearts on the hope that Jesus has given us, the promise of an inheritance and a kingdom where God himself will wipe every tear from our eyes, and pour out his infinite love on us for all eternity. If we can fix that in our hearts as the most important thing, because it is the most important thing, nothing the world can offer or tempt us with will move us. And this hope also anchors us in times of struggle or pain. As a kid, Guy Fawkes was probably my favourite event of the year. It was better than Christmas, it was better than birthdays. Um, and when we got our fireworks home, we'd pull them all out of their box, read the labels, imagine how good Guy Fawkes was going to be, put them all back in the box, stick it on the shelf, get it down, pull them out, and so on. And just the excitement and, and anticipation grew and grew until the night finally arrived, and I was never disappointed. Now, I looked at objectively, collecting and cutting wood, dragging it to the fire, taking the time to build the fire properly, weaving all the branches together so that it's a nice, dense stack that burns well. It's hard work but it never felt like that because of what it was working towards. All the time and effort and cuts and scratches and blisters and bruises, they were, part, they were thoroughly enjoyable because I knew they were all part of creating a better Guy Fawkes experience on the night, and Guy Fawkes night was my focus. And so it's the same thing for us. As we spend time thinking about the blessings in store for us in heaven, as we start to grasp the reality of the hope we have, and as we focus our minds and hearts on that, the struggles and the sacrifice and the suffering that go into following and obeying God, 
can actually cease being hard work and struggle and become joy because of what they are working towards. And that's what we see in Hebrews 10.34. It says, You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions in heaven. Now, from our situation, we sort of say, hang on, hang on, struggles are hard. We can't just gloss over them like that and say, just look forward to heaven and it won't hurt. They do hurt. They are hard. But the reason the Bible can seem a little bit blasé about our suffering, you know, just consider it joy, um, is because it has the eternal perspective in view. And so Hebrews 12 goes on to talk about that. And in verse 16, we're given a sobering warning with the example of Esau who for a simple meal traded his entire future inheritance. And then further on, at the end of chapter 12, verses 26 to 29, it says, But now he, that is God, has promised, Once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, the created things, so that what cannot be shaken shall remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And what that means is we need to live our lives never losing sight of the fact that all these earthly things we either desire or fear will be shaken, consumed by the fire of God. And this eternal perspective separates what is real from what is unreal. What is real will last Everything else, no matter how important it seems to us now, will disappear and be gone. So we must not, like Esau, trade the permanent and lasting things for the temporary ones. We need to focus our hearts and minds on what will last, the hope Jesus has set before us. But here's our problem. Even though we know all this stuff, we are fallen people. Sin's deception works on us. We just struggle to keep our minds focused on these things, even though they're so important. We can't do it by ourselves. And obviously the first thing we need to do is pray and be asking for God's help. But one of the ways God has chosen to work is through his body, the church, us. Which brings us right back around to the need for us to encourage each other. And so we read again, Hebrews 10, 23 to 25. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on to love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. The Greek word um, translated encourage there is parakaleo or something to that effect. Um, this word is sometimes translated encourage, sometimes exhort, sometimes warn. And literally it means to call one alongside, to call someone to oneself, to call for or to summon. And the primary sense in the New Testament is of calling someone to take a particular course of action. And it's not just saying do this, it's always at its core got that idea of enabling or strengthening that person to meet their difficult situation with confidence and courage. And one example from secular Greek literature where parakaleo was used um, was talking about a group of soldiers who were completely demoralized and couldn't go on. The general sent a leader out to speak to them, to encourage them, in such a way that their courage was reborn and a body of dispirited men became fit again for heroic action. So encourage is not just good work, well done, like your shoes, um, or that sort of thing, which is how we tend to, tend to think of it. 
what's in view is actually much stronger than that. The encouragement Hebrews is talking about is to be given with love and concern for each other and with an element of urgency in the knowledge that there are eternal consequences at stake. It's reminding each other that even though we are so busy with all sorts of important things, we need to carve out time to meditate on who God is and to fix our eyes on him. It's to remind each other that even though it is hard to discipline ourselves to read God's word, it's worth it. It's pleading with each other to obey God's word, even though some of the stuff God asks us to do can inconvenience us or make us uncomfortable. Because the day is drawing near, and when it is here, we will all wish we had done so much more for him. It's hammering away at each other with the truth that all these seemingly desirable things the world is offering us will never fulfill us, and they'll soon disappear. That any persecution or suffering we endure is achieving an eternal weight of glory. And that one day we will be so, so, so glad we persevered. And while logistically we can't each do this for everyone in the church, um, or you know, a church this size anyway, our home groups are an ideal place for this. Um, but actually, any time we're meeting together, this should be happening. Because um, it says, but encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today. And some of you are, in fact, very good at this. I know there are people who are excellent at encouraging. But for me, and for a lot of us, we we tend to talk about the weather and work and whatever hobbies and interests we share. But how much time do we spend in our day-to-day conversations talking with each other about the awesome glory and majesty of God and about the joys and blessing of an eternity with him in heaven? Um, Lyndon talked earlier in the year about our identity being in Christ how above and before any of the other things we are, we are Christians. Therefore, the first and foremost thing we have in common with each other is our faith. Um, We tend to talk comfortably about things we have in common, so we should find our conversations always returning to our faith, encouraging each other and marvelling together at God's goodness. So, just to finish, in a couple of days we're going to be starting out into a new year, 2020 no less. Um, We don't know what difficulties or struggles it might bring us. We may find that persecution begins for us as Christians in New Zealand. Or we may just continue to face the seduction of all the things our world tries to distract and tempt us with. So our challenge is to set aside time to consider the awesome power and glory and goodness of God. To focus our hearts and minds on the hope he has set before us. And to daily encourage one another with these things so that when he returns, we will be among those who are eagerly waiting for him, having held firm right to the end. Thank you, Nathan, for those uh, words of encouragement. We can be uh, very aware of our frailties, our shortcomings, what we can't do. But it's about seeing the amazing grace and love of God and what he has already done in our lives and he wants to continue to do in us and amongst us. After this particular song, I'll just give a few minutes opportunity for you if you'd like to just declare, pray, praise God for the things he's doing in your life and just an opportunity to worship that way. Can you rise and sing with me?
Say. 